0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guests will be Jim Christopher, who is the founder of SOS, Secular Organizations for Sobriety, and the author of several books, including How to Stay Sober, Recovery Without Religion. And our second guest will be Andrew Tatarski, who is the author of Harm Reduction Psychotherapy. Uh, before we start the show, I'm going to do a little plug for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available on Amazon. Or go to our website, hamsnetwork.org slash book. I think I see our first guest, Jim Christopher, right now. I'm going to bring him on the air. One second. Hello, Jim. Are you there?
1: Yes, I am. How are you?
0: I'm doing very well, Jim. Tell us a little bit about SOS and why you decided to found a secular recovery organization.
1: Well, uh, SOS or Secular Organizations for Sobriety, also known as Save Ourselves. uh, I began years ago on a kitchen table, I guess you'd say, out of my own pain and frustration, I had been sober already a number of years before I started SOS. I got sober April 24th of 1978, but uh, a number of years uh, went by. I was happily sober uh, on my own. Occasionally I would attend a a traditional 12-step meeting to see... Was it, did I feel as badly about it as I thought I would? Is it as unappealing to me as I had recalled? And sadly, yes, it was. So, uh, I was happily sober, uh, with something I call the sobriety priority approach, uh, but, you know, involved in life and getting on with my life and being, staying sober is a separate issue from everything else. So, But I miss the camaraderie, I came to miss it more, of of, uh, common cause support groups, like you might have a support group for cancer uh, patients or whatever it may be. It's a common cause, and they know what you're talking about and vice versa. So I thought that something should exist out there that was not uh, spiritually or religiously based and it didn't exist really uh at that time and so this was about um the 94 period around in there um and recall I'd been uh, sober since 78 uh, but I I'd, I'd lived all these years happily sober and but I did miss that component so I wrote some articles first I wrote an article for the uh, international humanist magazine free inquiry and it was published Uh, in uh, 85 but before the article hit I had been uh, doing some initial experimentation with meetings just simple support group meetings not bumper sticker talk but regular human uh, discourse in private homes, those were precursors and then I was giving talks around about the need for something other than just one true way, we need options we need alternatives we that's you know diversity that's that's what uh things should be about not just one choice one door to go in so uh when i wrote that uh, article uh the uh, person who who well before i I'll go back before i wrote the article there was a, a lady who attended one of my talks and said someone should start something. And I've driven 40 miles to uh, you know hear this, and somebody should start something. We should have something besides 12 steps. So I started working on the uh, the idea of, of getting you know uh, really into it and starting it. And uh, my article hit, and then I got I was even more encouraged because I got worldwide response then from people everywhere saying there should be something. There should be something uh, started, something that exists besides the one true way. So uh, I started uh, this uh, SOS group in, in uh, after the precursor groups in homes. I started in, in North Hollywood, California, with one meeting. But as, as I said, this was literally on a kitchen table, designing, you know, uh, communication with with people who are saying, hey. Uh, I want want to do this too and this was before the internet age Mm -hmm. so I um, wrote some more articles I wrote articles for other publications about this and got more specific and then I I, um, I wrote some material that could be used in a secular meeting more of a self-empowerment approach rather than a learned helplessness approach an internal locus of control instead of an external one uh, but I wanted to make everyone feel welcome, uh, as they genuinely have been welcome, whether they're religious, non-religious, uh, tall, short, Republican, Democrat, whatever. the The focus of our groups is not uh, as one uh, one uh, Catholic nun who started an SOS meeting. She said, "You know, Jim, those AA groups." want you to get good and that's a good thing but actually what we want to do is get and stay sober.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh you know
1: if you've had the addiction experience from a substance it's a pretty good idea to uh you know eschew that substance, keep that out of your uh system, don't imbibe that and and get sober and then go on with your life, go back into therapy, go back to college, whatever you want to do. So that was the uh, the the beginning the spark uh was uh, years ago but then actually the meeting started rolling in 85 and they also simultaneously or almost simultaneously were beginning to start around the world the first materials that that i set out with the help of some others eventually we were pretty crude, you know, but we were just folks getting in touch with each other. Uh, you know, somebody might be in Belgium or Oklahoma City or wherever they might be, and they were also starting SOS groups. Now, at first, it was called uh, Secular Sobriety Groups, and we gave it the more compelling acronym, uh, SOS. But uh, there you have it. We started, and, and the groups began to grow. We're, we're So uh, we're the... Oldest and largest, when I say oldest, I know there's women for sobriety, but mm-hmm. women for sobriety address um, uh, their gender specific. So we we have meetings for everyone and have since the beginning. And we also uh, saw from the beginning uh, one, one person uh, sort of uh, did, it, did it for me, when she attended, and her her name I can't uh, give, but she had an overeating problem. And she said, you know, I can't abide OA. May I come here? And we said, well, yeah, this, we just didn't know that those who weren't addicted to substances and they had uh, compulsions of some other kind that they would want to attend. So overeaters were always welcome. This was from the very beginning, overeaters, gamblers, etc., uh, mm-hmm. Families and friends of alcoholics. That was from another lady whose name I can mention, uh, Betty Zavon, who had uh, uh, an addicted loved one. She was not a, an alcoholic. Uh, she said, uh, "Gosh, I don't like Al-Anon, and I, I have. I'm really enjoying these meetings. So, why are we welcome to to the same meetings? And uh, yes." they're welcome to the same meeting so we we don't do a segregation approach we do a uh, everyone is welcome approach and it seems to work pretty well that's really good
0: um, our hams group that we're doing we still do mostly online rather than live meetings and we have the main online group where everybody joins in um, some of our people have also said we'd like to have a specialized subgroup so we do have a specialized drugs group and a specialized friends and family group, but everyone, of course, is also welcome to participate in the main group. So that's how we've worked it out with our online groups, with our HAMS approach.
1: Right, and we have online uh, e-groups as well and have for a number of years. And one of the most popular groups uh, at SOSsobriety.org uh, is um, one of the the numerous e-groups support instantaneous support, as you know, and no geographical boundaries as well. So we have our women's SOS group. I think has the participation of uh, of uh, over 500 women, uh, and, and we have other groups as well, of course. But I mean that's uh, that meeting is uh, quite popular. Okay, very good.
0: Um, Let me ask you, um, AA says that people need to go to meetings for the rest of their lives. How does SOS feel about that?
1: SOS is open to – SOS is also a free thought forum in recovery unless someone is not choosing abstinence as their goal. If they don't have abstinence as their goal, then they would be better served in moderation management or some – something like that but if uh, some a few people only a few over the years have come to us trying to get and stay sober but to hang on to their drug at the same time thinking they maybe we would be a little more open to that than the 12 step they're certainly uh, not open to that uh, but they also didn't like the religiosity uh, as they put it of uh, AA but we told them what well, your uh, if your goal is abstinence, uh, you're welcome here. If your goal is uh, moderation, you you uh, you know would be better served in, in another approach. Except, just like uh, the folks in in 12-step, uh, from my limited experience uh, with 12-step, I, I did go to some meetings as I shared, but. Um, If someone turns up and says, you know, I don't know what I want yet, I don't know if I consider myself an alcoholic or a drug addict, I don't know. I just want to come and see what's going on and see if, you know, I think I should do something, but I'm not sure, they would be welcome. Now, sometimes uh, it could be argued that the 12-step folks uh, will, uh, you know, say, uh, well, sure. (laughs) Sure, you're uh, uh, you may not be an alcoholic and why do you think you're here and things like that. But other uh, AA groups might not be as uh, hideous as that in in their uh, response. They might be more caring. I don't know. But I know at SOS when these folks uh, attend and they don't know, they simply just don't know. They want to see. Uh, we welcome them. We do state quite openly that this is an abstinence-based group. And if your goal is, uh, If you decide at some point that your goal isn't abstinence, then you would be doing a disservice to the other members and to yourself to hang around here. Uh, Like one lady from the past, uh, she had no uh, substance uh, addiction problems. She simply wanted a lonely hearts group. And one man asked her at one point, since she would always talk about things totally unrelated to anything in recovery, uh, and political items as well, and so with it, he said, why are you here? He asked her, and she said, because I'm lonely. And that's sad and moving, et cetera, but uh, speaking of Los Angeles, there are lots of, of uh, places, groups that lovingly address that. But I, I'm just giving you some some oddball things that have happened over our 26 years of existence. Okay,
0: um, what do you think about powerlessness? Do people is it good for people to call themselves powerless, or do you think that's a bad idea?
1: Well, uh, that's I, I think that that when you call yourself powerless. Uh, that's not, uh, we try to in SOS to be accurate or, or to be, uh, uh, say things that are appropriate. Uh, I'm not, as long as I don't ingest, uh, in my viewpoint, as long as I don't ingest the drug alcohol, I was not much into the other uh, recreational drugs or, or uh, uh, addictive substances, it was mainly booze. As long as I don't ingest, uh, ingest that drug and keep it out of my body and my life um I'm not powerless uh but if I put that in my body research has shown pretty well I think that it's a uh, if you've had the addiction experience as I call it uh as Albert Ellis might say and I'm not uh, we're not part of the Albert Ellis operation but as he might say you had better um you know T- take some action if you if you've had if you've had the addiction experience uh, I can't speak for him and he's dead still dead that you can't um uh, get away with with drinking or using because I think uh, right. uh, another doctor who wrote the natural history of alcoholism said it's sort of like not having a spare tire sooner or later uh, I mean, I'm not in, I'm not impressed personally, and I'm getting fragmented here, jumping around. I'm not impressed with uh, alcoholics uh, uh, who or people who have had the addiction experience uh, drinking for you know periods of time and getting away with it because sooner or later, what from what I've seen in, in my uh, 33 years of sobriety and over the 26 years existence of SOS, is sooner or later. Uh, they're going to reach for that spare tire, and it isn't there. And they're going to have uh, some problems. That tends to be what's going on. But now as far as our free thought forum approach, if uh, someone, in fact, I can state someone in, uh, not mentioning his name, but uh, I know him personally, in SOS uh, might say, well, here are the, I see the SOS suggested guidelines, and I see this and I see that, but I like the group itself for support. I do choose abstinence, That's so. so I belong here. I do want a safe, secular environment, so I belong here, and I do want a, a self-help, non-professional, common cause support group. Uh, so I can achieve and maintain sobriety, so I belong here. But the, some of these other things, the stuff you've written, Jim, and the stuff that other members have written in brochures and so forth, a lot of this stuff I just I can't relate to. I jump on the trampoline every third Wednesday, and that's how I stay sober. Welcome to SOS, because it is a free thought forum. However, uh, and also his opinion about uh, not moderation management, but uh, harm reduction. His opinion about harm reduction and other matters is that uh, there's a place for that, Uh, but he would state, but it's not for me. I, you know, I choose SOS. It's not for me. Harm reduction is not for me. I choose abstinence, but I believe in harm reduction under certain uh, circumstances. He would say, and uh, he's a member of SOS. We have some people members of SOS who say, I would never uh, drink a, a, a non-alcoholic beer because it would uh, trigger certain things for me. I believe, and blah blah blah. Others. Uh, happily drink uh, non-alcoholic beers on occasion and say uh, that doesn't trigger anything for me. It doesn't have any alcohol in it. And so all of those people coexist under the big tent, so to speak.
0: That's very good. Um, Since we're talking about abstinence, uh, abstinence is the best solution for many people for many things. And you know we even as harm reductionists we're totally supportive of abstinence if abstinence is the right way for a person to solve their problem with something we totally support them myself I used to smoke cigarettes unfiltered 20 hand rolled cigarettes every day I was a very heavy smoker that's like 80 you know Marlboro's and sure. I quit cigarettes completely I don't touch cigarettes at all I don't want to smoke one cigarette a day Moderate cigarette smoking has no appeal to me. Total abstinence is my best goal, cigarettes. And yes, well, I, I would
1: say, uh, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I I had to do the
0: same thing with television. I can't own a television because I watch it. It wastes all my time, and I don't let one in my house. Um, with other things, with alcohol, I chose to, you know, reduce the amounts greatly, and that worked for me. But, you know, uh, I understand that for other people, you know, Abstinence works the best for them, and we encourage people to go for whatever solution works for them. We have people inside our harm reduction group who are abstaining from alcohol. We have others who say, you know, I really want to be around other people who are abstaining. And we say, that's great. Go out. Try SOS if you want a secular group. Even if you, if you want to try AA, I'm not a fan of AA, but if you want to try it, go ahead and try it. If that works for you, that's good, too. We'll support anything that works for people.
1: Right. Well, we're more, um, I guess you would say, a harm elimination group rather than a harm reduction group. I believe in uh, the harm reduction. That that concept can be applied to many things. Like, uh, for an example, uh, a heroin addict who um, is given clean needles. That's harm reduction. Uh, mm-hmm. I wish that the heroin addict would not be an addict anymore. I think he or she would do better in life, uh, at, you know, uh, abstaining from uh, heroin and, and getting that out of his or her life. But if they're not doing that, uh, I'm, I, and, they're, and they have no choice of getting dirty needles, well, no, I want them to have clean needles. So that's a form of of harm reduction. Um, now when it 's applied to uh, i noticed that you didn 't apply it to uh, cigarettes, and the World Health Organization says that uh, uh, nicotine is more addictive than heroin. Uh, I stopped drinking uh, in seventy eight i didn 't stop smoking until uh, uh, ninety three but and I wrote a book about it and, and I stopped smoking uh, painlessly too that 's what i mean i 'm not fond of pain so uh, the the idea of applying harm reduction to cigarette smoking, I really don't see how one would do that with that particular drug uh, as you've uh, basically shared. It's—it's it's, Now I've known people of course, uh, they're rare, but I've known people who might have a cigarette uh, every month or two or whatever. Um, I, I don't understand that because we're talking about a physiological addiction. Uh, for most folks uh, and more addictive than heroin, so says the World Health Organization, so most of us uh, had better uh, who who had the cigarette addiction the cigarette addiction experience. Uh, get the hell away from cigarettes a, as soon as we can with whatever methods we need to use uh, what, there are lots of lots of approaches out there now to get away from it and, and I think that 's uh, very helpful. I uh, I used the taper down approach, and then I saw later after I successfully stopped without any uh, urgency to embrace my refrigerator. And so I noticed that there's a, a lot of research out there that showed that uh, folks like myself who didn't stop cold but did the taper down, you know, uh, 19, 18, 17, etc., uh, whatever it is. It, uh, and and at the same time replacing it with other good stuff like parking your car further from work so you walk some and keeping uh you know sugar free lollipops around for a time and things to do with your uh with your nervous fingers and what have you um this works uh, really well so um, I did achieve this and I noticed when I was down to zero cigarettes I went right out into the middle of the more interesting people, the smokers. Uh, that's uh, you know a joke, but I went out to speak with them. I wasn't going to be shut out of their world. They were outside, courteous smokers. I was at a visiting at a home and out of town. Plenty of people puffing cigarettes. It meant nothing to me. After I had stopped and and I got this out out of my system, I just uh, I, I didn't want it anymore. And I also. Uh, had some other techniques and feelings. When I went into a store, and back in the day, they would put the cigarettes right in front of you. At least, uh, they don't do that anymore in in uh, Los Angeles. They would put them right in front of you, just like they put the desserts in two different places in a cafeteria when you first come in and when you check out. Uh, they had the cigarettes there, and I said to myself, with tears welling up, damn you, you addicted me for 30 years. And that was a very... Uh, moving and uh, helpful experience for me, I was happily off cigarettes and and, uh, and I detested the drug because it's uh i can't think of any positive attributes of uh, nicotine and cigarettes
0: okay i'm going to go back to one thing you said about harm reduction for nicotine because there are some ways to do harm reduction for nicotine, and one uh, that's fairly new, it's the electronic cigarette, which is about 100 times safer than a regular cigarette. It's not very carcinogenic. It still leaves you with the nicotine habit, which might, not, which might be a bad thing. You might not want the nicotine habit anymore, but at least it cuts the chances of lung cancer down to very low, so it's a much safer form of using nicotine. Well, even the patches, the nicotine gum, are also safer forms. They don't eliminate the addiction and don't necessarily reduce the amount you're using, but they are a harm reduction way right. to ingest the nicotine. So,
1: well, All of these approaches exist. I'm just saying uh, in SOS there are folks who might think um, harm reduction is, is a helpful thing. I don't do it because they wouldn't be in SOS if they did it. They would be in a harm reduction group. I don't do it but I think it's helpful and someone else may say, well, I don't see that that's particularly helpful, but they're also an SOS member, just much like someone who might drink uh, a fake beer and someone else wouldn't, thinking it might be a trigger. But um, So all of that exists in SOS. My personal opinion of harm reduction is when it's applied to things like clean needles for heroin addicts, and so forth, is uh, is a different matter, in my view, from folks who have had the alcohol addiction experience, just speaking of booze, had the alcohol Mm -hmm. addiction experience, and um, let's say they've done it for many years or whatever it may be. um, And I know that there are people um, who say that they, I haven't met very many, but they say that they have, uh, stopped there, uh, you know they've cut it, cut it way down, and so forth. And uh, I liken it to an experience that I had, which I covered in my first book, "How to Stay Sober Re- Recovered Without Religion," and that was my real experience in uh, a clinic in uh, California. That I wanted to hang- basically, I wanted to. I think harm reduction can be for some folks a way to hang on to their drug. Uh, That's what I wanted to do, and I went to uh, this clinic with this famous doctor, and I wasn't a wealthy person, but, you know, he made made it affordable. And um, I went to a fake bar. I mean, you know, they had uh, beer signs on the wall and bar stools and all this in the clinic, and uh, I learned to drink uh, safely was the idea, using a little measuring cup and blowing into a breathalyzer, and... So worth to retrain myself uh, to drink moderately, uh, you know that would be harm reduction because I used to drink uh, my drinking was just out of out of control out of sight, so the idea was they would show you tapes of your behavior on drunk night they had something called drunk night where you would choose mm-hmm. your your drink and i chose uh, extra dry vodka martinis i mean i went through various phases of my drinking but that particular thing is what i wanted at the time and then i remember saying to as this was all put on tape uh to the uh, one of the assistants uh uh something i won't repeat but to the doctor i said you know you're a fat and um you know they're, this they're professional so they kept giving me the the booze as much as i wanted and and they had a plastic bucket for me to throw up in and they had a friend to drive me home later uh, on another occasion i was shown the tapes that's supposed to uh, help you shape up uh, from drinking actually i was moved like you would be by a a, a melodramatic film or something i saw <laughs> i was i was uh, uh laughing and uh moved as well from it but i didn't it didn't uh, it didn't do the trick, and I did modify my drinking uh, for a while, but I'm not impressed w- with that. From what I've seen in life, alcoholics can do this, but as Dr. Vallet said, sooner or later, they reach back and so forth. So I saw it as, in my own particular case, speaking my own situation, uh, as a as a stalling of of the uh, of the quit process. The uh, the uh, choosing abstinence uh, moment I I saw that as a stall and to be able to hold on to my drug now maybe I can't have as much which is agony for someone uh, it's been my experience anyway who is used to drinking a lot of booze and then to try to uh, cut it to one or two or whatever Um, and I do want to insert here which has nothing to do with this uh, program per se or uh, harm reduction or abstinence there's a lot of stuff I started to use the word social drinking and there's a lot of stuff that goes on out there uh, that tries to pass for social social drinking that isn't Uh, I know some people who keep very well oiled and um, maybe sort of like W.C. Fields did, uh, or, or maybe that's a bad example, but they keep—they just keep going now. Their lives, uh, Churchill, you know, uh, would we want to do without Churchill? I think not. But uh, look at the, and Hitler, uh, you might recall, it was a vegetarian, I think, a vegan, and a teetotaler. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. which one would you choose? I would certainly uh, put a big bear hug around Churchill. Well, but sure. as we all know, he drank just sort of steadily, steadily, steadily throughout the day. He was well-oiled. Now, did he accomplish great things? I don't think that requires a comment from me. Uh, Obviously, he did. But I'm just saying people can accomplish great things, uh, whether they are afflicted uh, or or involved with uh, maybe too much booze or drugs or not. And sometimes they get so impaired they can't accomplish too much anymore. But uh, I think there's a. Uh, if I guess, generally speaking, if one has had the addiction experience, uh, it would be wise, I think, to choose an abstinence uh, approach.
0: Well, absolutely. We're going to move on to our next guest in a minute. I just want to say that. Uh, Many people find quitting alcohol completely is the best choice for them. It works best for them. If you're one of those people that wants to quit completely, one of your options is to use SOS for a support group, get some of Jim Christopher's books, read some of his books. You can probably find them in the library. I read them from the library. Thank you very much, Jim, for being our guest this evening.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Okay, I'm going to bring our next guest on. Right now, Andrew, are you there?
2: I am here, and I'm very, very happy to join you in okay, this spirited gonna... uh, conversation.
0: <laughs> I'm going to do a little introduction. Andrew Tatarski is the author of Harm Reduction Psychotherapy, and uh, it's a great honor to have him. He's a therapist that's practicing here in New York City. I've met him at uh, harm reduction conferences. Uh, Andrew, tell us, how did you get involved in doing harm reduction psychotherapy? Was this the first first thing you did or were you involved with more traditional treatment first?
2: Well, uh, believe it or not, it's hard for me to believe. I came into the addictive behaviors field uh, kind of by accident in graduate school over 30 years ago uh, when most of my patient clients were drug users, alcohol users. Um, and there was no training, uh, but I got turned onto the field. And after my training, I worked. I got my first job out of um, clinical psychology um, uh, training in a um, old-time addiction treatment center up in East Harlem in New York City, and I learned uh, and was steeped in the traditional abstinence-based. 12-step facilitation, what we call that today, 12-step facilitation treatment program approach. And I worked in that, from that perspective, for the first roughly eight years of my career, um, uh, having really the good fortune to learn from and work alongside of old-time drug and alcohol counselors who were very impressive, caring, dedicated, wonderful people Wound up um, as the clinical director of a couple of the, uh, you know, premier outpatient programs in New York City um, for a number of years. And so that, my first introduction was into the traditional approach. And, um, you know, we helped a lot of people over those first years. This is in the, you know, through much of the 1980s. But as I began to look at our outcomes, as the clinical director of an intensive outpatient program, we started to look at our outcomes. You know, how many people who came for intake, you know, got into groups? How many who got into our intensive program completed the program? How many got into relapse prevention or long-term maintenance? And gradually over time it began to dawn on me that we were failing to effectively engage retain and help the overwhelming majority of people that were coming to our programs, uh... with a great deal of um... anxiety and you know sort of growing dread i began to wonder what was wrong with this picture you know mm-hmm. the accepted model wasn't working with uh, all good intentions and so on and um... I had, uh, at the same time, in the late 80s, just started a private practice in psychotherapy, and I began getting referrals from uh, active drug and alcohol users for psychotherapy. Now, according to the old model, um, you're not supposed to be able to treat uh, active drug and alcohol users who are not ready, willing, or able to stop, Mm -hmm. Um, but because... I had had this experience that the traditional approach wasn 't helping most people. I felt inspired to be creative and experimental and I began uh working with people that seemed motivated and they seemed like they really wanted some change in their lives and Lo and behold, many of them became uh, you know meaningfully engaged um, Many of them began addressing their various life issues, and in fact, many began to address the substance use effectively, either cutting back, using more safely, and in some cases, stopping. So the clinical experience was at odds with the paradigm, the the prevailing treatment paradigm, and um, I began to wonder, you know, is there another model? And I had the good fortune in 1993 of having a relationship with Alan Marlatt, who is a trailblazer, what's a trailblazer in our field, um, who had brought harm reduction to this country from Europe. And I shared with Alan uh, one night, this was this sort of momentous night, you know, like the spiritual reawakening that many people mm-hmm, talk about mm-hmm. in the recovery world. And I said, Alan, you know, I'm having this clinical experience that uh, it's not supposed to be possible what's going on? And he said, you're doing harm reduction. And I said, what's that? And, you know, that was this moment when my career took a, you know, 180 degree turn. I sort of discovered a whole new model, both for understanding problem substance use and uh, a treatment framework for informing a whole different way to support people in Positive change, and that—that that was the harm reduction um, introduction for me. Since that moment, I've really devoted my career to drawing out the implications of, of the harm reduction paradigm, harm reduction principles, for psychotherapy, counseling, substance use treatment, and more recently for, you know, um, sort of self-help um, uh, or or self-managed kinds of uh, change. Um, So that, and and I have to say that that moment really sort of saved my life because, you know, toiling under this old paradigm, which was sort of the accepted truth, and I think it still is, uh, for the majority of treatment centers and, uh, you know, in this country and even around the world, um, it's crippling because... It doesn't feel good, it doesn't feel right, it's not mm-hmm. helping and yet but it, it's sort of this myth that um, you know we've all been taught to believe in. The alternative model, I think it's like a scientific revolution. you know the world was flat, the data began to uh, contradict this paradigm, and gradually over time, we began to recognize that the world is actually round uh, this is the order of importance that I I see the harm reduction model serving, you know, uh, at this point in time in the addictive behaviors field. Um, So as I've been in the field now over these 18 years as a committed harm reductionist, I've come to believe more and more over time that this approach is an essential part of any effective approach to, you know, addressing addictive behavior. And you know maybe we can flesh that out. I think it's a it's a radical claim, um, and uh, part of my mission in uh, in the field is to sell that idea because I think it's essential. You know, to um, uh, creating contexts, whether in therapy or in you know self-help situations, that are going to support people in changing these what can be really life-threatening you know, struggles that they're having around substance use and other risky behaviors.
0: Now your book is called harm reduction psychotherapy, right? Um, so uh, I want to talk a little bit about dual diagnosis and ask you, do you think that, you know, there are mental illnesses that cause substance abuse or does substance abuse cause the mental illness or can it be
1: both?
2: Well, Thank you for really raising what I think is an essential question, Uh, and that is um, it's sort of the paradigm question, that is the the way that we understand problematic substance use, I think is going to be reflected in how we think about treatment or how we think about approaches to change, right? Mm -hmm. So when I talk about a paradigm shift, I'm thinking about the old Um, disease concept of addiction, which I think I heard the the previous speaker alluding to. You know, what I call and and what certainly Stanton Peel has been a trailblazing leader in writing about, you know, the myth of the disease of alcoholism. Um, uh, But that old myth, that old story is a story that splits off the problem drinking or problem substance use from the whole person in their environment. And then it sets up a treatment that kind of deals with it as a primary issue in isolation. That's what I think is the fundamental problem with with the traditional approach. The basic premise for understanding the problem behavior is wrong. Mm. The way that we have now increasingly come to understand addictive behavior is as a reflection of this complex interplay Between uh, personality dynamics, between co occurring psychiatric issues, between uh, forces of habit and learning, and of course, there may be some biological piece, as well as social context, you know, lifestyle, what's happening, you know, in people's lives. So that, you know, I think on the more extreme end of things, um, it is more likely that there is always. Some significant uh, co-occurring issue, you know, whether it is it reaches the level of a of a diagnosable psychiatric illness, or is more of a uh, sort of the normative level uh, of anxiety, stress, depression, self-esteem issues, you know, that are so common amongst most people in in modern society. But that if we just try to understand the the problem behavior separate and apart from these sort of co-occurring or co-mingling issues, I think, you know, we're less likely to be effective at changing. So I would say just the quick answer to your simple question was um, I think substance use or problem uh, be substance use typically reflects, carries, you know, expresses in some way these complex um, personal, emotional, psychiatric issues that may be Co-mingling. So it, it moves in that direction, but then the problem substance use can also, if it becomes excessive and uh, so on, um, creates uh, uh, consequences that can exacerbate those original um, issues. Now what we've got is a process set in motion. But this is a whole different way of thinking about addiction as a process rather than as a disease a process of interacting vulnerability factors which, you know, create some kind of special fit with the substance so that the substance feels good, it works in some way, as an attempt to cope, manage, adapt, care for oneself. Uh, As people become increasingly reliant on a substance for all of those functions, you know, it can set in motion a whole set of consequences such that people – uh, now become less capable of coping without the substance and so on. And that can you know, set that, that process in motion. I, I think one of the beautiful things about this more complex process model is that anywhere that we can intervene in the process at any point, whether in those early vulnerability issues, in the substance use itself, in the consequences of substance use, We can actually um, sort of change the process. We can help people begin to change their uh, relationship to the substance, which will support positive change in substance use. And here's where the beauty of the harm reduction premise, that we start where the person is, wherever the person is ready, willing, or able to begin to work. That becomes a point to uh, encourage and support uh, positive change. And, you know, it begins the process um, of reversing that negative spin and beginning a kind of positive um, process, working toward positive change. Okay. Um, you know, in traditional treatment,
0: they talk about cross-addiction, and they say if you're addicted to one substance that you're addicted to all and that you have to stop everything and you can't control any substance. What do you think of that as a harm reduction therapist?
2: You know, I think that any generalization really troubles me. You know, this is my problem with the the word alcoholism. It assumes that there's some general process, you know, that some large group of people fall victim to, right? Mm -hmm. Cross addiction, you know, it's based on the notion that You know, uh, there's this addictive process that inevitably, you know, crosses over to other addictions, and and that becomes part of the justification for the total abstinence recommendation. I think that any of those those generalizations don't do justice uh, and respect, you know, and empathy and compassion for each individual who is struggling, who is so unique, that the generalizations, you know, um, uh, run the risk of, you know, violating um, or, you know, the, that person's denying that person's unique experience. Um, and therefore, it's going to be useless. Mm. You know, you're like all the rest. One size fits all. you got to do what we all did. Um, you know, I think this is certainly true for some people, you know, that whatever it is that, you know, renders them vulnerable to developing a kind of addictive relationship to something can render them vulnerable to also developing an addictive relationship with other substances or other activities. We commonly see this. On the other hand, there are many people who can stop the primary substance and continue to use other substances um, uh, in more moderate, controlled, and safe ways. So... I would say that you know our, as a field, I mean, and again, this, this I think refers to central tenets of the harm reduction approach. If we approach each individual as a unique individual, and we can create a context that will support them in, you know, finding their own path, and you know, then. Each individual's responsibility or, or is to answer those questions for him or herself. You know, do I need to stop altogether, or can I moderate my drinking? You know, do I need to stop all substances, or can I maybe cut back on some, quit others? You know, and, and so on. Um, I think the harm reduction framework is a framework that is designed to support each person in answering those questions ideally for the, for him or herself. Uh, so we honor diversity. We honor unique individuals. We believe in individual choice. We believe that each person has to find their own path um, uh, rather than, you know, uh, trying to foist generalizations and, you know, half-baked, Non-scientific ideological ideas on on people. Which, yes, I I'd yeah. always
0: wanted to ask the uh, traditionalists why they excluded caffeine and nicotine from the cross addiction thing and didn't tell people you all have to stop smoking and drinking coffee too.
2: What about sugar?
0: Huh. Uh, sugar know? could be in there too. Okay, I want to move on to something else because uh, you're talking about it earlier, and I think it's important. You're talking about. Uh, the drug or the addiction, it's a coping mechanism, and you know I'm patenting so somewhere you know you can't take away the coping mechanism until you replace it with a new one and Could you address that
2: a little bit? Yes, this is um you know this is a basic tenet of any you know behavior change theorist, whether psychoanalytic or cognitive behavioral um you know we humans are always trying to cope and adapt to our uh, to our difficulties, and uh, under extreme circumstances, sometimes people need to take extreme measures to adapt and cope um, If the only thing available to deal with overwhelming emotions or overwhelming stress or uh, depression or boredom or an absence of opportunities you know for pleasure and and enjoyment, is a substance which will, you know, spark a little burst of dopamine in the brain, Um, that may be a life-saving choice. And if it's a matter of falling apart or, you know, getting through the day however you can, most people will take the second choice. Now, the problem may be that as people turn to this substance or this activity to cope and manage, um it may become deeply ingrained as sort of the go-to uh coping strategy uh and over time it may uh, a no longer be necessary b may limit people's flexibility in a sense in coping um and have its own inherent negative consequences right so mm. but to your point um if for whatever reasons people don't have other better ways of coping, caring for themselves, comforting themselves, and so on, um, they're not going to give up the substance. So um, there may be it, it may be very important with folks uh, to identify the function that the substance has, to understand you know how it's you know the, the positive role that it's playing, so that the person can begin to think about alternative ways of meeting that need, of coping with those challenges. And um, it may be then necessary to actually develop uh, these new skills, these new habits, these new supports in one's life before somebody will become motivated or able to actually give up, you know, the chemical coping. And again, here's where harm reduction, as I said at the beginning, I think is essential that under these circumstances, the individual would have to be doing this work while they're continuing to drink or use the drug. We've got to open our doors to people who are drinking and using drugs while they're doing this work. That's what the harm reduction model is all about. The old abstinence refrain is come in, give up the substance, and then we'll help you deal with all the other issues. Um, It just doesn't meet the reality of, of where people are, and so, you know, it's no wonder that the overwhelming majority of people with these issues never go to treatment, they never go to AA, they never go to abstinence-based programs, um, and when they do go, they usually don't stay or they don't stop. So we've got this huge group of folks out there who need harm reduction. They need contexts where they can come in on their own terms, begin to figure out, you know, What these issues are that need to be addressed begin to strategize and develop some new skills and then decide how they want to modify their drinking or drug use i like to say yeah uh,
0: go ahead go ahead
2: well that another thing that i like to say is that you don't need to know the outcome of the journey in order to begin the journey you don't you don't need to know the destination. Is it going to be cutting back? Is it going to be stopping? Well, the most important thing is creating a situation that supports people in getting started um and then we can figure that out as we go along we and, and we as professionals can support people in figuring it out, or you know you as a self-help program can can uh, you know with with colleagues can get you know provide support for people to figure that out.
0: Okay, a really a tra- a traditional model that I've encountered a lot says, okay, if you have drug users or people who drink alcohol, you can't do any psychotherapy with them. You can't uh, address depression or anxiety or do any other sort of psychotherapy because their minds are affected by the drugs. And is that true or do you find that not true?
2: Uh, not true. Um, I, I think, again, we're running into the problem of the tendency to generalize. Uh, this is stigmatizing, this is disrespectful to individual diversity, Uh, and it's wrong because, in fact, um, everybody begins a process of positive change. I mean, virtually everybody. We'll we'll get back to the the other cases in a minute. You know, while they're drinking and drugging. And and I like to say that the founders of AA started AA while they were drinking. Mm -hmm. Okay? Um, another way to get at it is, you know, we can think about substance use as, as being on a continuum, just like depression, anxiety, um, you know, any other, you know, condition. So intoxication occurs on a continuum. Um, along the more severe uh, edge of those continua, I think we would all agree that a person probably can't get much benefit from being in therapy if you're so depressed that you can't get out of bed, if you're so anxious you can't sit still and, and, and have a conversation, or if you're so intoxicated that you're wiped out, mm-hmm. um, therapy probably won't be very helpful. But along the less severe edge or in you know along that continuum, um, people may actually need to be intoxicated to get there.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: mm-hmm. in some cases it might actually enable the process of therapy. People may need to, you know, test you. You know, you say you really love me, you care about me, you know, what if I show up drunk? Mm-hmm. You know, So that may be an important part of the therapeutic process, to actually, you know, test the therapist's um, authenticity or, or capacity to be accepting. Um, and also, you know, it's hard to determine, you know, when are you really intoxicated or not? Was it if you got loaded last night or in the middle of the night or... So I think a central tenet of this work is we need to understand the meaning and the function that substances have in people's lives, the role that they're playing, you know, before we make these decisions, uh, and that we need to make these decisions as professionals in collaboration with the the client, patient, who is the expert. Uh, And that the problem of of these blanket statements also is it comes from this notion that the doctor, you know, the professional, knows better than the patient. Uh, This runs the risk of just repeating the same old, you know, uh, patriarchal, authoritarian, you know, controlling attitude that many of us grew up with as kids mm-hmm. that we may have revolted against that contributed to drug use in the first place,
1: actually.
2: Mm-hmm. So well, I think I... we as professionals, we want to take a position where we don't come off as the ones who know best for you. We want to help you figure out what's best for you. We want to put you in the driver's seat. We want to empower you, you know, to figure out what's best. And then we can provide support, feedback, you know the well. You know the 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 uh, benefit of our experience working with lots of people, but it's always in conjunction with engaging the client as the collaborator, the participant, a team member, um, the expert. This is a, another, I think, essential benefit of the harm reduction model. It's collaborative. It's not prescriptive. Um, And I tell you, you know, it works. My whole practice now over nearly 20 years has been populated by people that are active drug and alcohol users. Uh, And uh, many of them have stopped using. Many of them cut. Uh, I think think this approach, you know, helps people get started where they are. and, And usually where they are is using something or other.
0: Well, I've definitely encountered the old authoritarian approach when I was seeking,
2: you know, therapy, help for
0: depression, and I would be told, you know, you have to go to AA before I will help you. And I would say, you know, no. I can't go to AA, AA makes me want to drink. And I would be told, no, AA does not make you want to drink. And say, What do you mean? How can you tell what's going on inside of me?
2: There you uh, go. And how did it make you feel? I mean, the, were these professionals, you know, in the first 15 minutes of meeting you started dictating and telling you what you needed to do?
0: It was completely unhelpful. Um, you know, I finally, the person I could talk to, even, I was an atheist. The only one person I could talk to was a priest because he was the one that wasn't throwing the prescriptive ideas out at me. Uh, no. well, and you know, I
2: just have to say that Unfortunately, in this enlightened age where we have more research and more, you know, um, uh, theory and you know, powerful people, you know, Stanton Peel, Bill Miller, Reed Hester, Alan Marlat, Pat Denning, uh, you know, the Sobels, we've got a wealth of information that supports this harm reduction approach, as you know, and yet. This notion uh, that people need to stop drinking or drugging before they get into therapy or before they can begin to make positive changes still persists. I hear this nearly every day. You know, another therapist in practice tells a patient, I can't see you unless you stop drinking, or uh, or a program won't accept somebody in because they haven't committed to stopping um i think that this is um reckless um uh behavior that is dangerous to people and um uh i think it's a crisis in the field that you know we need to take we are taking on really the harm reduction community the evidence based practice community is basically taking on this dangerous uh behavior masquerading as help
0: I agree very much. Well, we're going to have to close for tonight, but uh, Andrew Tatarsky's book is Harm Reduction Psychotherapy. His website is andrewtatarsky.com. That's correct, isn't it?
2: That's correct.
0: And uh, we will be with you again next week when our guests will be uh, Friend the Girl from Stinking Thinking and Liz Michael from Moderate. And uh, Stanton Peel has retired from closing the show, but he did a very good post on Huffington Post today. Check out his blog. And thank you, Stanton, for all the many weeks that you came on to close the show for us. Now, everyone, good night.
2: Good night.